Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here with you. Great to have you back and thanks very much for listening. I thought it's about time we did a update show. It's been a little while and my goodness, do we have a lot of things to update. So uh, I'll move pretty rapidly, but hopefully there'll be something for everyone who's listening. So the first thing, bit of news, is that there is now per second billing for EC2 instances and EBS volumes. So this is a move from the hourly billing that um, we used to have. Now it's per second, essentially effective October the 2nd of 2017. Uh, Linux instances that are launched on demand, reserved and spot will be billed in one second increments. Also provision storage for EBS volumes will also be billed in one second increments. Now the per second billing also applies to Amazon EMR, AWS Batch, Elastic GPUs, which is pretty cool, and provision IOPS for IO1 EBS volumes as well. Now, what you need to know is there's a one minute minimum charge per instance, and then it's per second on from that. So it really changes the granularity of how you're operating. That means you should uh, see a few savings in your bill for those types of workloads where you don't run for the full hour or part thereof. Another nice change is around Amazon VPC. You can now expand the size of your VPC by adding secondary IPv4 address ranges or CIDRs to your VPC. You can do this with the console or the CLI as well. And it allows you to use all other services as part of those. And it means you don't have to make your VPC too big up front if you're not quite sure if it's going to grow. But if you do need to grow it later on, away you go. Now, I love some of the small improvements that uh, come for customers from time to time. And one of those is a bit of a ripper, small but perfectly formed, as I like to say. And this is descriptions for security group rules. So now when you add a rule to a security group, and you should have lots of security groups because they're a very powerful way to control the traffic flows in your environment, you can actually put a description of up to 255 characters that you can view in the console. And you can also see in the CLI and the APIs as well. And you can enter a description when you create a new rule, and you can also edit descriptions for existing rules as well. So this makes it really easy to understand why a rule was created, and you can imagine there'll be lots of things that people will do with that just to keep track of what's going on in their environment. It's been a little bit of a while since I've talked about EC2 Spot. I'm a big fan of using Spot. And there's a really cool new capability for EC2 Spot instances. Now you can stop and resume workloads on EC2 Stop Spot instances. Now, Those of you who have been used EC2 Spot before remember that it was either running or terminated, which meant that it was suitable for a particular class of applications but couldn't be used for everything. Now what will happen is EBS volumes attached to the stopped instances will remain intact, as does the EBS-backed root volume as well. When the capacity becomes available again in the pool, the instances are started and you can keep on going and you don't have to start from scratch for that particular instance. Now, this is useful for, certain again, certain classes of applications and fit the way that you operate. Also, EBS volumes always exist within a particular AZ. So you might want to make sure your spot and spot fleet requests are just for that AZ to take care of that. So have a think about how you might apply this technology. However, it is a really interesting capability for those workflows that tend to use persistent storage for a lot of their intermediate work. Now, of course, many customers use the Amazon VPC NAT gateways to allow egress of data without having to expose any instances to the public internet per se. There are now new uh, CloudWatch monitoring and resource tagging capabilities for the VPC NAT gateways. You can now monitor via CloudWatch and via the CLI. You can see uh, bytes, packets, 
and active connections, just to name a few. You can also add tags to those gateways as well. So one of those nifty little tracking capabilities that we like. Uh, speaking of VPCs, VPNs, and other cool things, uh, there's an update to the AWS VPN capability. You can now apply uh, custom pre-shared keys, PSKs, uh, and you can also do some other tweaks, and there's an SDK update as well. You'll also notice a new category field. So your category of your VPN will be an AWS Classic VPN or AWS VPN, and this allows you to understand some of the capabilities of one VPN versus the other. For example, um, features available only for the AWS VPN are things like CloudWatch Metrics, AES-256, SHA-2, uh, some additional Diffie-Hellman groups, and NAT Traversal, just to name a few. So something to be aware of if you're a VPN user. One of the nice things about using services that are managed for you, uh, and one of those being Amazon Elasticsearch, is that updates are much, much easier. So you can now get support for Elasticsearch 5.5 and Kibana 5.5 in the Amazon Elasticsearch service. Now, this gives you a whole bunch of benefits uh, from those particular products, things like self-service restore for automated snapshots, some additional configuration, support for stored scripts as well is being supported, a number of uh, performance enhancements, etc. All the good stuff that you get when you uh, update a particular piece of software is available for you now. Now, many of our customers serve global audiences and they also want to route traffic based upon where people in the location on the globe are at the given time for a number of different reasons. Could be for performance, could be for uh, particular categorization of data, etc. Amazon Route 53 now supports geo-proximity routing with traffic biasing. That was a big mouthful, wasn't it? Essentially now you can route traffic based on the physical distance between your users and your resources. And you can also route more or less traffic to each resource by specifying a positive or negative bias. So you use this using the latitude and longitude for different locations, and then you allow the DNS queries to make those decisions based upon the data that it has. This is a really cool uh, capability, and certainly if you're serving global audiences and you want to route traffic to particular locations for particular reasons, this is a nifty capability to go with. Speaking of the network layer, there has been a big release for those of you who do any load balancing, and this is a new network load balancer, or the NLB. So you may be familiar with the classic ELB and the previously released ALB. Well, hello to the NLB. And the NLB is designed to handle tens of millions of requests per second whilst maintaining very high throughput at ultra low latency and no effort on your part. Now, the good thing is, is the network load balancer is API compatible with the application load balancer and you can do everything with full programmatic control. Now, what are some of the cool capabilities of this particular load balancer? Well, the first thing is, is you get static IP addresses. Yes, I know many of you have wanted this for a long time. Each network load balancer provides a single IP address for each AZ in its purview. So if you've got targets in US West 2A and US West 2C, you'll get two IP addresses, one per AZ. And connections to that IP address will spread traffic across the instances in all the VPC subnets in the AZ. So you get really good control over this. Now, this is useful for those types of situations where you have to provide a non-changing IP address for whatever reason upstream. Now you can do it, which is really nice. Another new capability is zonality. So the IP per AZ feature reduces latency gives you much better performance and gives you better availability through isolation and fault tolerance because it uses the connectivity 
in the back end to route the request from a particular source to targets in the same AZ while still providing automatic failover should those targets become unavailable. So basically it's using the quickest path possible wherever possible. Now another change is also around source address preservation. One of the questions I often ask prospective solution architects is what does the X forwarded for header do in HTTP and with the network load balancer you don't have to worry about that anymore. The original source IP address and source ports for the incoming connections remain unmodified. So now you can just treat it with natural rules without having to figure out where it came from in the previous hop. Another nice thing is the support for long running connections. The NLB handles connections with built-in fault tolerance and it's designed to handle connections that are open for months or years. So this is a great fit for things like IoT, gaming and messaging applications as well. It also supports some really good failover capabilities um, based on Route 53 health checks. So take a look at those as well. So when do you use which load balancer is the question. Uh, the network load balancer is ideal for balancing of TCP traffic. The application load balancer is ideal for balancing HTTP and HTTPS traffic. So it depends what layer you're operating on as to which one you'd like to use. Now pricing and availability, the billing is based on load balancer capacity units or LCUs. It's very low cost. It's typically based on a combination of bandwidth, the number of connections, new connections, I should say, and active connections as well. And you'll typically find it's lower cost when compared to using an application or classic load balancer, um, particularly applications that are bandwidth bound. We see it being about 25% less cost as well. The NLB is available in all AWS commercial regions except for the China-Beijing region, and it's supported by CloudFormation, Autoscaling, and ECS, so get your hands on that one. It's a nifty one. And speaking of cool new things, do you need a server with up to four terabytes of memory? Well, you can have it now. The new X1E32X Large has four terabytes of DDR4 memory. It's available in four of our regions. And it really is designed for those memory hungry things, typically things like SAP HANA and other things as well, um, which makes it really interesting to put really big loads onto AWS. Another toy I really like is the Amazon EC2 F1 FPGA instances, those field programmable, 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 that's hard to say. The field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs. You can now run C and C++ applications as well. And those F1 instances are now also available in US West Oregon and EU Island regions as well. So a bit of expansion there for you. So let's talk software development for a little bit. And one of the, uh, I guess things that the cool kids are using these days, if I can dare say that, is React. And React Native, I should say, is a uh, mobile development platform and it's very popular with a lot of developers. And um, the mobile team has released a starter project with one-click AWS deployment and serverless infrastructure. So this is a nifty little thing that you can grab and use straight off GitHub uh, to see how an application using React Native would be created using AWS resources, etc. It's a nifty little uh, pet tracking application and uh, it gives you some good ideas of how you might build your own applications as well. Now, one of the most uh, entertaining new services, I think, is something called Amazon Lex, which allows you to build chatbots. You can do all kinds of interesting things. The team has been hard at work adding new features for our customers. Uh, one is uh, some changes to the test console, and now gives you a lot more information about what's going on during the testing that you're doing. So you can see exactly in a detailed view what the parsed response from the chatbot is. You can understand the current state, and it really helps with debugging as well. There's also support for synonyms now. So you can say, you know, what does... Uh, 
comedy mean? Well, it could be funny, it could be humorous. Uh, you can resolve it to a number of different things. It allows you to understand uh, more combinations more easily without having to create quite as many intents, which is good for the efficiency of building things. You can now also define custom request attributes or choose predefined attributes as well for specific request levels. So, for example, it supports time zone as a predefined request level attribute, and you can decide how you want to pass information through those. You can choose things that are sort of session related. They can give you an idea of where something's taking place as well. So, again, more flexibility. Speaking of flexibility, more built-in slot types as well. We have support for phone numbers, speed and weight as well. These are all available in preview so that you can understand uh, what this might allow you to do. Um, there are now 96 different built-in slot types that you can use. And of course, you can now export your Amazon Lex chatbot schema into the Alexa skills kit as well. This is really useful if you're creating an Alexa skill so you can transfer one to the other so you can make your development far more efficient. And if you're a student of machine learning and artificial intelligence, you'll be interested to know that the uh, latest version of Apache MXNet version 0.11 is available now. Some additional capabilities in there, including Apple Core ML and Keras support as well. So it makes it very easy for you to get access to some of these more advanced um, mechanisms and tools to do different neural networks and machine learning, etc. And maybe use things that you're more familiar with versus some of the other options that are out there as well. So a new version there to download and get going. If you're a software developer, you should have an automatic process for deploying your software. And AWS Code Pipeline fits the bill pretty well. And it now provides notifications on the pipeline stage and action status changes that are happening within a particular pipeline. So this is really useful for you to understanding if there's a change of state that you need to do something about or handle. And now integrates with Amazon CloudWatch and you can get notifications with the Amazon Simple Notification Service, or you can invoke a Lambda function as well based on a status change. So you can imagine you can do all kinds of different flexible things. Now, if you're not familiar with AWS Code Pipeline, or you're not sure if it's available in your region, you can get it in US East Ohio, US East North Virginia, US West Oregon, US West North California, Canada Central, EU London, EU Ireland, EU Frankfurt, Asia Pacific Sydney, Asia Pacific Mumbai, Asia Pacific Singapore, Asia Pacific Tokyo, and South America Sao Paulo region. So it's around in quite a number of places. Many customers are also building applications that have uh, text messaging or SMSing involved where they send messages out to customers and they use Amazon Pinpoint for this in many cases. Amazon Pinpoint now allows you to do two-way text messaging. So this means that an Amazon Pinpoint customer can receive text messages from their users back. So this could be useful, for example, if you're confirming a booking or you want a next action to take place. You're not only sending out the text message, but you're receiving a response back that you can use as well. And Amazon Cognito also now integrates with Amazon Pinpoint as well. So you can do things like analytics for user, user pools and you can enrich your Pinpoint campaigns. So a nice combination of two very powerful capabilities together. Now, if you're a database person and I talk about views and late binding, you'll get it. And if you're not, you probably won't, but that's okay. Because all you need to know is that Amazon Redshift now supports late binding views referencing Amazon Redshift and Redshift Spectrum external tables. So remember, Redshift Spectrum accesses data in Amazon S3 directly, and that's using, uh, you typically for less frequently accessed data. Late binding views allows you to drop and make changes to reference tables without affecting the views. So now you can query frequently accessed data in your Amazon Redshift cluster and less frequently accessed data in Amazon S3 using a single view. So this is really nice in terms of having really easy visualization of data with very efficient storage mechanisms going on behind it. So 
bit of nice innovation there. A couple of updates to AWS Device Farm. So AWS Device Farm is, of course, a service that allows you to test against a wide range of different mobile hardware devices so that you know your software is going to work. You can now have custom artifacts on AWS Device Farm, which means that you can deliver different things like uh, log files, test framework generated files, application generated files, etc., and have this part of the custom reports that come out of the testing process. Another new thing that's supported is the iPhone 8 and 8S hardware as well. So some of the latest generation of things that are out there is available for you to test straight away. If you're a fan of Amazon Aurora and you're currently using Amazon RDS for MySQL, you can now migrate encrypted databases from Amazon RDS for MySQL into Amazon Aurora. Previously, you could only do unencrypted databases. Now you can do encrypted ones as well. So a small change, but a meaningful one. And one of the services a lot of our customers love to use is something called the Amazon EC2 Systems Manager because it automates a whole lot of things in terms of managing servers and machines and instances, etc., both in EC2 and, of course, on-premises as well. And the team have just added support for the Raspbian operating system. So customers can now manage Raspberry Pi devices just like any other Linux server. Now, I'm sure many of you are sitting there going, hmm, that's an interesting option to managing these tiny little devices that live out there in the world. Now you have an automated way to do that. So uh, that's a good one to explore. Speaking of new things, AWS Greengrass is available in Asia-Pacific Tokyo region now as well. And AWS Greengrass is part of the uh, IoT set of uh, software and devices that you can use to integrate remote connectivity into the cloud. And we also now support Java 8 and Node.js 6.10 Lambda runtimes with AWS Greengrass, which a lot of customers have been asking for as well. So now you can have connected devices that run AWS Lambda functions, and that can be in Python 2.7, Node.js 6.10, and Java 8. So you can kind of choose the language you feel like using at the time. Now, security is always a big concern for us here at AWS, and particularly on behalf of our customers as well. And one of the great tools you have available to you is AWS CloudTrail. There's now an option that is available to you to add all Amazon S3 buckets to data events as part of CloudTrail. And what this does is handle both new and existing S3 buckets into S3 data events. So this lets you understand the API interactions on the objects. You can get detailed information such as the AWS account, the IAM user role, the IP address of the caller, time of the API call, etc. In the past, you had to manually add the buckets every time you want to do this. Now you can say it should automatically happen for every single bucket that exists or gets created as well, which is really nifty. And there's been a couple of really interesting changes to Amazon Kinesis Analytics. In the past, you could have a single in-application input stream. Now you can have multiple in-application input streams. This allows you to parallelize your input streams and have increased throughput, which is fantastic from a performance perspective, as you can imagine. So you have uh, ability to move through the pre-existing limits into far higher performance availability levels. There are now also six new streaming processing functions that you can use as well, which means that you can expand the way you process these different time windows, etc. For example, there's a step function, which is an easy way to perform time series analytics. There's uh, real-time sessionalization use case support using the lag function, 
We've also added support for the conversion of Unix timestamps with the two timestamp and Unix timestamp functions. Pretty excited about those. And you can also parse complicated strings in your data using more regular expression functions like regex replace and our old friend substring. Substring will never go away. <laughs> Gets me through all sorts of problems when I'm coding. So Kinesis Analytics has some very cool new changes there that you really should take advantage of. And the lucky last thing I'm going to talk about in this episode, because we've covered a great deal and I haven't covered all the changes that have been taking place, but I kind of tried to pick the pick of the crop, if you like, is AWS Cloud Formation now allows you to have stack termination protection. So this allows you to protect a stack from being accidentally deleted. Now, you can enable termination protection on a stack when you create it. And if you try and delete the stack when the termination protection is enabled, the deletion fails and the stack, including its status, will remain unchanged. So to delete it, you've got to turn off the termination protection. This is great for those key workloads that you really, really don't want to turn off unless you really, really mean it. Now you can do it, which is fantastic news for customers who use that. Thanks for sticking with me. This was a lot of stuff to cover in a pretty short period of time, but I hope there was something for you that you're like, hey, I can use that. So we do love to get your feedback, podcast at amazon.com. And until next time, with a lot more new stuff, keep on building.